Welcome to another episode of Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you. I'm so glad you're joining us today, this week, as we uh, read through the scriptures, read through the New Testament this year as a church here at MNBC. Um, we have made our way through three whole gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We are in the midst of the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John. And it's different than the other three. You probably have noticed that as you've been reading. Um, John writes, each of the Gospel writers has unique contributions to um, give to uh, the the whole canon of, of Scripture. But John is especially unique and uh, is kind of like one of those uh, great mountain peaks um, in the the whole Bible. Um, in a sense, there are certain books, right, that are special um, kind of uh, just they stand out more so than others do. And, and John is one of those books, kind of like the book of Romans is and, uh, and uh, such like that. And Isaiah is among the prophets. So here we are. We're in John chapter 8 through chapter 12 this week. This week uh, for the week of April 17th through the 23rd. So remember, we're, we're reading the Gospel of John, and we're talking about this, um, this, this truth about John here is writing this, this Gospel. Probably he's in Ephesus. He's probably writing it fairly late in the mid 80s to 90s after the destruction of the temple. And John here tells us at the end of his book that his purpose is that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Christ, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. So John here is writing uh, really, in a sense, in a twofold way to encourage those who are already believers um, and reminding us of who we are in Jesus and who he is for us, but also to, uh, in a sense, it's, as I've read in a, in a New Testament introduction, this is kind of uh, indirect evangelism, if you want to put it that way. He is indirectly also reaching out to unbelievers, uh, people who maybe don't know the gospel or are um, outside of Christ, and, and calling them as well uh, to place their confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. So we've been reading here. We've uh, made our way through. We've talked about the outline last week, the main outline, right? Um, There's two really big divisions. There's the book of signs, right, where Jesus does all these signs. First one beginning in um, with the water um, at the wedding, turning it into wine in Cana. And then his seventh sign he performs is the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, which we will be reading uh, this week. So as you look here in um, chapter uh, 8 through 12, in chapter 8, we've really got some teaching here. Jesus tells the um, the religious leaders that he says, I am the light of the world. And he also says that before Abraham was, I am he later on in John 9 is going to perform his sixth sign of that he shows forth demonstrating who he is and it's the healing of the blind man and this is a powerful sign and we see that the religious leaders are really uh, furious about this and actually cast out the blind man from the synagogue and from fellowship but he's while well, he's expulsed or um, you know they they kick him out um, from the synagogue he's embraced 
by Jesus, and he's a believer in Jesus. And then that leads on the tail of that. Jesus then speaks in John 10 and talks about himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And this then leads into the last section in John chapter 11 and 12. This is the last chapters of that first big section, the book of signs, right? So it's kind of like the the middle part of chapter one after an introduction of chapter one. We got the book of signs from the middle part of chapter one all the way through the end of chapter 12. And then we've got what could be called the book of exaltation, which is talking about Jesus's last meal with the disciples, his arrest, his uh, betrayal, arrest, his suffering, um, his crucifixion and resurrection uh, through chapter 20 before we have an epilogue, a concluding chapter in chapter 21 with uh, Peter being restored uh, to uh, Jesus. So the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 is the last sign. It's the greatest sign before his own death and burial and resurrection. Uh, The raising of Lazarus is the greatest sign that you see Jesus perform in the gospel of John. And it it leads then to the triumphal entry and uh, the last kind of Jesus wrapping up his ministry uh, before Uh, his uh, death, burial, and uh, resurrection. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on here in John chapter 8 through chapter 12. And so there's some, this is part of the problem we've mentioned before. There's so much in John's gospel. We could do uh, tons of episodes because there's also a lot of really good material uh, to read about uh, John's gospel. You know, you could could read, like we're going to do today, J.C. Ryle, the expository thoughts on the gospels. Um, you could really just really learn a lot there, but you could also look at, if you were to look at sermons, you could look at past sermons like by Charles Spurgeon, or there was a more modern preacher whose uh, name was James Montgomery Boyce. Um, he was really good with John. Um, and then, or you could read any number of commentaries. The, the point is, is there's so much good stuff on the Gospel of John uh, to not simply in the Bible text, but people reflecting upon that Bible text. Um, so we have to kind of pick and choose. Uh, what we're going to talk about. So the first thing I want to talk with you about today is and look at together and meditate on is from John chapter 8. And this is the verse, particularly thinking about this verse where Jesus says um, in verse 12, John eight twelve, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is from J.C. Ryle uh, on these uh, section of John 8, 12 through verse 20. J.C. Ryle writes this. Let us notice for one thing in these verses what the Lord Jesus says of himself. He proclaims, I am the light of the world. These words imply that the world needs light and is naturally in a dark condition. It is so in a moral and spiritual point of view, and it has been so for nearly 6,000 years. In ancient, Gre- in ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome, in modern England, France, and Germany, the same report is true. The vast majority of men neither see nor understand the value of their souls, the true nature of God, nor the reality of a world to come. Notwithstanding all the discoveries of art and science, darkness still covers the earth, and gross darkness the people. Isaiah 60, verse 2. For this state of things, the Lord Jesus Christ declares himself to be the only remedy. 
He has risen like the sun to diffuse light and life and peace and salvation in the midst of a dark world. He invites all who want spiritual help and guidance to turn to him and take him for their leader. What the sun is to the whole solar system, the center of light and heat and life and fertility, that he has come into the world to be to sinners. Let this saying sink down into our hearts. It is weighty and full of meaning. False lights on every side invite man's attention in the present day. Reason, philosophy, earnestness, liberalism, conscience, and the voice of the church are all in their various ways, crying loudly that they have got the light to show us. Their advocates know not what they say. Wretched are those who believe their high professions. He only is the true light who came into the world to save sinners, who died as our substitute on the cross and sits at God's right hand to be our friend. In his light, we shall see light. Psalm 36 verse 9. Let us notice secondly in these verses what the Lord Jesus says of those who follow him. He promises, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. To follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior, and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. Following is only another word for believing. It is the same act of soul, only seen from a different point of view. As Israel followed the pillar of cloud and fire in all their journeyings, moving whenever it moved, stopping whenever it tarried, asking no questions, marching on in faith, so must a man deal with Christ. He must follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Revelation 14.4 He that so follows Christ shall not walk in darkness. He shall not be left in ignorance like the many, going, like the many around him. He shall not grope in doubt and uncertainty, but shall see the way to heaven and know where he is going. He shall have the light of life. He shall feel within him the light of God's countenance shining on him. He shall find in his conscience and understanding a living light, which nothing can altogether quench. The lights with which many please themselves shall go out in the valley of the shadow of death and prove worse than useless. But the light that Christ gives to everyone that follows him shall never fail. So stopping right there real quick. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the only remedy for our darkness, right? And this is what J.C. Ryle is trying to point out, what, the, what Jesus here is saying in the text, is that the world is darkness, and the world doesn't like to hear that they're in darkness, do they? The world doesn't like to hear that. But on the other hand, it is interesting how oftentimes um, we hear people talk about how they're going to show us the light or bring us to the light, or we even have that image where sometimes right where we, have, like, we think we found a solution and we say the light bulb came on. And, and what happens is that there are alternative small L lights that we try to follow is, as sinners in this world, don't we? Um, we hear people in, who try to follow the light in order to bring life and, and fertility and uh, growth and, and all the good things that, the, like, that that light brings to us. Um, we want all of those things, but we don't want them in Jesus, right? We try to do it, whether it be finding um, it in, in our work or in, our, in, our, in what we do. 
or in who we are, um, whether that be however we identify ourselves, um, whatever form of salvation we can be pursuing to save ourselves from some problem. But Jesus here is saying he is the only light who comes into our darkness and the darkness is sin. The darkness is death and, and uh, everything apart from him. And so he comes as our substitute on the cross. And that's how Jesus gives us the light because he is the light and his light is his crucifixion work, him crucified. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to show us the light by just giving us a better way to live. He gives us the light by giving us life in his light. Um, there, there's so much difference here, isn't there? And then we do walk in his light. Um, we do try to um, uh, act the way Jesus did. We want to model our lives after him. But that is only after, first of all, he comes and gives us life by his death and resurrection. And then he says those who follow him are those, he says here, J.C. Rao points this out, who commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. So we follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That is what it is to be in Jesus, to be in Christ, to be someone who is a follower of Christ. And so we want to commit ourselves wholly to him, entirely to him and to his purpose, because our identity is now intertwined and inseparable from him. You, there's no anymore, you may be able to distinguish yourself from Jesus, but you cannot separate yourself from Jesus and you cannot pull yourself apart from Jesus. You are inseparably connected to him by faith. And so, therefore, following him um, means we, we, are, we are in him, one with him, and we follow him wherever he goes in our lives and in and, and what we believe and in who we are. Okay, so I got more here underneath this um, that we could, we could read more. Um, let me see if I want to read it here real quick. <clears throat> um, yeah, you know what? Let's uh, keep going here along. Let's read next about beef, the next section here. So we talked about Christ says, I am the light of the world. The next thing I want to talk about is John 8, verse uh, 58. And Jesus here is in a discussion uh, with uh, continuing this this discussion, right, with the Jews here. And eventually um, they, they talk about how Abraham is their father. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. Your father is the devil because you don't do the works of Abraham. And they are offended at this. Uh, what Jesus uh, tells them. And eventually Jesus uh, tells them this startling truth in verse 57. Um, uh, Well, let's start earlier in verse 56 here. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Startling words uh, coming from from Christ. Ordinary people don't talk like this, right? You're either uh, you are either the Lord of all the earth, and these things are true, or you're a lunatic, right? There's no uh, there's uh, that's what C.S. Lewis points out, right? He's either Lord or a lunatic. You can't have either way. Normal people don't say these kinds of things. 
Um, so what is Jesus saying here? Uh, this is from J.C. Ryle here. He says, we should observe in this passage what clear knowledge of Christ Abraham possessed. We read that our Lord said to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When our Lord used these remarkable words, Abraham had been dead and buried at least 1,850 years. And yet he is said to have seen our Lord's day. How astonishing that sounds. Yet it was quite true. Not only did Abraham see our Lord and talk to him when he appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, the night before Sodom was destroyed, Genesis 18, verse 1. But by faith, he looked forward to the day of our Lord's incarnation yet to come. And as he looked, he was glad. That he saw many things through a glass darkly, we need not doubt. That he could have explained fully the whole manner and circumstances of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary, we are not obliged to suppose. But we need not shrink from believing that he saw in the far distance a Redeemer, whose advent would finally make all the earth rejoice. And as he saw it, he was glad. The plain truth is that we are too apt to forget that there never was but one way of salvation, one Savior, and one hope for sinners and that Abraham and all the Old Testament saints look to the same Christ that we look to ourselves. We shall do well to call to mind the seventh article of the Church of England. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament the everlasting life is offered through Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard who assume that the Old Fathers did look only for transitory promises. This is truth that we must never forget in reading the Old Testament. This is sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, stopping right there for a second, I think this is a very helpful and good reminder for us because sometimes, uh, today I think particularly, we read the Bible and sometimes we think that the before Jesus came on the scene, that the Old Testament saints like Abraham and Elijah and Isaiah and David and Moses, all those guys, we sometimes think they were saved by believing something more vague or general or, um, or that their faith was different from us. Or maybe, maybe sometimes we are even thinking well, that we don't share the same religion really with them. But J.C. Ryle here is helpfully pointing out that Jesus himself says that Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus of Nazareth. Abraham was hoping and believing in Jesus. Abraham was saved the same way that you and I are. Now, that doesn't mean, as J.C. Ryle says, that he knew all the details. It wasn't so clear and in focus, but he was looking to the same Savior that we do. It wasn't so clear and defined fully, right? You kind of think about like when you're at the eye doctor, right? And you're trying to bring things into focus, right? And they'll be like, better one or better two, better two, better three, right? They're going through the, the sequence. And eventually, right, the point is, is, oh, no, that's more in focus. Oh, no, that's, that's blurry. But you could still kind of make out what the thing is, maybe, or you could see somewhat generally, but it's still blurry, and then when you flip it, it comes into greater focus and you see it more clearly. Well, that's what it kind of was for these fathers, these uh, Old Testament fathers. Abraham saw ahead, but it was, it was more blurry than what we see it in. 
but he was looking to the same object. He was looking to the same Christ that we do. And, and this is so important, too, because when we read the Old Testament, as J.C. Ryle here, he quotes the, um, what he calls the seventh article of the Church of England. The Church of England, which is the Anglican Church, or in America, uh, one version of this is the, uh, the Episcopal Church, had a thing, a document called the 39 Articles. That's kind of like their, um, like how Southern Baptists have the Baptist faith and message, or you've got different denominations have different confessions or statements of faith. This is kind of their confession or statement of faith, their confession of what they believe. And uh, this article, this uh, one section of what they believe says that the Old Testament is not contrary to the new. These are not like two totally separate books. They work together in seamless harmony, don't they? The message of the Old Testament is not different from the message of the New Testament. There may be some differences, but those are not differences in the sense in which they're different religions, but they may be emphasizing different things, but they are still preaching the same message to us, Old and New Testament. Christ was Christ in the Old Testament, and he's Christ in the New Testament. He hadn't come yet, in the, New, in the Old Testament, uh, but they were looking forward to him. And in the New Testament, we see him come and his reign from heaven now as the risen Christ. So there's, there are nuances and different emphases, but they are not substantially different. They're still the word of Christ to us, both Old and New Testament. Okay, so that's very helpful to think about. Uh, it's fascinating, right? Just pulling that one little that little thing that Jesus says there real quick has so many implications for how you and I read the Bible. Do you read the Old Testament? It wasn't originally addressed to you, but it now is yours because you're in Christ. And the Old Testament scriptures belong to you, and they should inform the way that you live. Now, there, we have to do this with, in light of the whole of redemptive history and, and everything, right? We don't do sacrifices. We don't um, follow the Old Testament ceremonies. But substantially, our life, our practice, our faith are the same as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were looking to Christ to come. We rejoice in the Christ who has come and will come again. Okay, continuing on this section here. So what clear knowledge of Christ Abraham had, uh, J.C. Rao continues. He says, we should observe in this prophecy how distinctly our Lord declares his own pre-existence. We read that he said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Without a controversy, these remarkable words are a great deep. They contain things which we have no eyes to see through or mind to fathom. But if language means anything, they teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ existed long before he came into the world. Before the days of Abraham, he was. Before man was created, he was. In short, they teach us that the Lord Jesus was no mere man like Moses or David. He was one whose going forth were from everlasting, the same yesterday, today, and forever, very and eternal God. Deep as these words are, they are full of practical comfort. They show us the length and breadth and depth and height of that great foundation on which sinners are invited to rest their souls. He to whom the gospel bids us come with our sins and believe for pardon and peace is no mere man. He is nothing less than very God and therefore able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. Then let us begin coming to him with confidence 
Let us continue leaning on him without fear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true God, and our eternal life is secure. Again, Jesus says these statements like this all throughout, right? Later on, he'll say, I and the Father are one. Um, And various statements like this teaching us that the Christ that we believe in is very God and very man, or true God and true man. He is... um, He is one person in two natures, human nature and his divine nature. And this is pointing out to us that Jesus in his divinity has always been. Actually, um, his his existence, he's eternal in the sense in which he's outside of time. That kind of blows our minds, right? Um, He is beyond time, and yet he takes to himself a human nature and, and comes into time. Because time is created, isn't it? And so this is Jesus affirming to us that whenever we see him and we look at him, he is true man, but we also see he's true God. He is eternal, omnipotent, everlasting. And our salvation is secure in the God-man who is our Savior and our Lord. Okay, next I want to talk a little bit about Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 10 here. John chapter 10, uh, Jesus says this. He says he's the door of the sheep, but then he later on says in verse 11 of chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I want to read this. So J.C. Ryle talks about what this means. What does it mean that Jesus is a good shepherd to us? J.C. Ryle writes this. These verses show us for another thing, one of the principal offices which Jesus Christ fills for true Christians. Twice over, our Lord uses an expression which, to an Eastern hearer, would be singularly full of meaning. Twice over, he says emphatically, I am the good shepherd. It is a saying rich in consolation and instruction. Like a good shepherd, Christ knows all his believing people, their names, their families, their dwelling places, their circumstances, their private history, their experience, their trials. With all these things, Jesus is perfectly acquainted. There is not a thing about the least and lowest of them with which he is not familiar. The children of this world may not know Christians and may count their lives folly, but the good shepherd knows them thoroughly and, wonderful to say, No, though he knows them, he does not despise them. Like a good shepherd, Christ cares tenderly for all his believing people. He provides for all their needs in the wilderness of this world and leads them by the right way to a city of habitation. He bears patiently with their many weaknesses and infirmities and does not cast them off because they are wayward, erring, sick, footsore, or lame. He guards and protects them against all their enemies, as Jacob did the flock of Laban. And of those that the Father has given him, he will be found at last to have lost none. Like a good shepherd, Christ lays down his life for the sheep. He did it once for all when he was crucified for them. When he saw that nothing could deliver them from hell and the devil but his blood, he willingly made his soul an offering for sins. The merit of that death he is now presenting before the Father's throne. The sheep are saved forevermore because the good shepherd died for them. This is indeed a love that passes knowledge. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
John 15, verse 13. Let us only take heed that this office of Christ is not set before us in vain. It will profit us nothing at the last day that Jesus was a shepherd if, during our lifetime, we never heard his voice and followed him. If we love life, let us join his flock without delay. Except we do this, we shall be found at the left hand in the day of judgment and lost forevermore. That's very comforting, isn't it, by the way, just talking about Jesus Christ as our shepherd. He knows his people. He cares for them and he lays down his life for them. It shows the the tender, loving relationship. And we are his sheep. We are his sheep, and he's the shepherd. Uh, Then then J.C. Rowell continues on here. He says this, These verses show us, lastly, that when Christ died, he died of his own voluntary free will. He uses a remarkable expression to teach this. I lay down my life that I may take it up again, No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. The point before us is of no small importance. We must never suppose for a moment that our Lord had no power to prevent his sufferings, and that he was delivered up to his enemies and crucified because he could not help it. Nothing could be further from the truth than such an idea. The treachery of Judas, the armed band of priest's servants, the enmity of scribes and Pharisees, the injustice of Pontius Pilate, the crude hands of Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nails, and the spear. All these could not not have harmed a hair of our Lord's head unless he had allowed them. Well might he say those remarkable words. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled? Matthew 26, verse 53. The plain truth is that our Lord submitted to death of his own free will because he knew that his death was the only way of making atonement for for man's sins. He poured out his soul unto death with all the desire of his heart because he had determined to pay our debt to God and redeem us from hell. For the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross and laid down his life in order that we, through his death, might have eternal life. His death was not the death of a martyr who sinks at last overwhelmed by enemies, but the death of a triumphant conqueror who knows that even in dying, he wins for himself and his people a kingdom and a crown of glory. Let us lean back our souls on these mighty truths and be thankful. A willing Savior, a loving Savior, A Savior who came specially into the world to bring life to man is just the Savior that we need. If we hear his voice, repent and believe. He is our own. Again, you'll notice, by the way, how often uh, we keep bringing up the cross um, in the meditations. I mean, there are other things that we could talk about, and we do talk about them. Um, in some of these, you know, in the preaching ministry, and also we've talked about different aspects of Christianity um, through the Gospels. But this, this truth about the cross and the resurrection and who Jesus is, this is something we must never, ever forget. His voluntarily laying down of his own life for our sakes is something that we must never forget because it impacts the way we live and it impacts who we think he is and and uh, what we think about him it changes everything and so as 
Ryle points out here at the very end, let us lean back our souls on these mighty truths and be thankful. Faith is, in some senses, so easy. It's just receiving. And yet, the life of faith can feel so very hard and difficult at times, too. But at its core, it's just leaning back our souls onto him and letting him catch us, letting him do it all, letting him save us. He's the Savior, and we are the saved. Okay, so now we move on into chapter 11. Jesus is the good shepherd. And then we see the the great miracle. And there's so much good stuff here in the John chapter 11 about Jesus Christ as he is... um, the, the, the resurrection and the life. Uh, these, are, these are very famous words. And then here, well, I want to meditate real quick with you because Jesus raises Lazarus and we read in verse 43 that uh, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And J.C. Ryle has this to say about just these words um, here. We should mark lastly the words which our Lord addressed to Lazarus when he raised him from the grave. We read that he yielded, excuse me, we read that he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. At the sound of that voice, the king of terrors at once yielded up his lawful captive, and the insatiable grave gave up its prey. At once, he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. The greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here, in open day and before many hostile witnesses, a man, four days dead, was restored to life in a moment. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the material world. A corpse, already corrupt, was made alive. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the world of spirits. A soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from paradise and joined once more to its owner's body. Well may the church of Christ maintain that he who could work such the works was God over all, blessed forever, Romans 9.5. Let us turn from the whole passage with thoughts of comfort and consolation. Comfortable is the thought that the loving Savior of sinners on whose mercy our souls entirely depend is one who has all power in heaven and earth and is mighty to save. Comfortable is the thought that there is no sinner too far gone in sin for Christ to raise and convert. He that stood by the grave of Lazarus can say to the vilest of men, Come forth, loose him, and let him go. Comfortable, not least, is the thought that when we ourselves lie down in the grave, we may lie down in the full assurance that we shall rise again. The voice that called Lazarus forth will one day pierce our tombs and bid soul and body come together. The trumpets shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52. So there we are, um, the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus and what it means for us and how that same voice that raised Jesus from the, that raised Lazarus will raise us all up at the last day. Okay, the last thing I want to do with you here is uh, talk about uh, John chapter 12, verse 32. 
Jesus here is wrapping up his ministry. He's done the triumphal entry. He's come into the city. And then he says this in verse 32 of John chapter 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, Jesus here in talking about being lifted up is talking about his crucifixion. And you know this too, because in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, right? To be lifted up was uh, meant, I'm going to be put up on the cross. And the crowd can't believe this. The crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So the crowd even says, what? The son of man has to be, the Christ has to stay here forever, right? He can't go away because they thought that by being lifted up, um, you know, they, they knew what he was talking about. And so what, let's think about this phrase. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus says this. And I want to meditate upon this truth here because Jesus is pointing to the cross, to the cross and the resurrection to come. And think about this verse uh, with the help of, of Charles Spurgeon, who has a sermon called Christ Lifted Up. And he has three main points here where he says Christ's crucifixion is Christ's glory. He talks about Christ is the minister's great theme, right? Because we lift him up in preaching. And then we talk about the attractive power of the cross, because when Christ is lifted up on the cross, people are drawn to him. So let's think about this together as we meditate upon this. Christ's crucifixion is Christ's glory. Spurgeon writes this, We will show you how. Man seeks to win his glory by the slaughter of others, Christ by the slaughter of himself. Men seek to get crowns of gold. He sought a crown of thorns. Men think that glory lieth in being exalted over others. Christ thought that his glory did lie in becoming a worm and no man, a scoff and reproach amongst all that beheld him. He stooped when he conquered, and he counted that the glory lay as much in the stooping as in the conquest. So now Spurgeon gives us a few reasons, right? So, Christ shows his glory, his splendor, his magnificence, not in the way that we would expect, right? We would expect Christ to come and not die and somehow deal with this or whatever. Uh, But the way of the cross, uh, remember even the disciples, they had no concept for this. This wasn't because it wasn't said in the Old Testament, because it was plainly there. It was the fact that they just couldn't understand this. Um, remember whenever he talks about dying and being crucified, Peter takes him aside and says, you can't talk like that. No, it won't ever happen to you. Um, so this shows us that this was a very surprising thing, and it still is surprising to us today. But it's by his dying on the cross that Jesus Christ is most glorified. So what are some reasons for this? Spurgeon gives us a few reasons why this is so, that his cross, his crucifixion, is his glory. First of all, because love is always glorious. Spurgeon writes, Now Christ won more love by the cross than he ever did, than he did ever win elsewhere. O Lord Jesus, thou wouldst never have been so much loved if thou hadst set in heaven forever, as thou art now loved since thou hast stooped to death. 
Not cherubim and seraphim and angels clad in light ever could have loved with hearts so warm as thy redeemed above or even thy redeemed below. Thou didst win love more abundantly by the nail than by the than by thy scepter. Thine open side brought thee no emptiness of love, for thy people love thee with all their hearts. Christ won glory by his cross. He was never so lifted up as when he was cast down. And the Christian will bear witness that though he loves his master anywhere, yet nothing moves his heart to rapture and vehemence of love like the story of the crucifixion and the agonies of Calvary. So I love that phrase that he, um, we, he won love by the nail more so than by his scepter. Wow. Um, really good. Secondly, he won love that his, he's glorified because of his fortitude. Christ shows his fortitude here, um, his endurance, right? The fact that he didn't give up. He went through all the pain. Spurgeon writes this, Christ looked upon the cross as being his way to honor. Oh, said he, now shall be the time of my endurance. I have suffered much, but I shall suffer more. And then shall the world see what a strong heart of love I have. How patient is the lamb, how mighty to endure. Right, so Christ shows his his love is magnified in the fact that he endured and suffered and persevered through it all. Think of all that he went through, and he never stopped. He kept going. Thirdly, it shows us not simply because of his love and his fortitude, but he's glorified in his cross because it was the completion of all his work. Spurgeon writes this, Christ longed for the cross because he looked for it as the goal of all his exertions. It was to be the place upon which he could say, it is finished. He could never say, it is finished on his throne, but on his cross he did cry it. He preferred the sufferings of Calvary to the honors of the multitude who crowded around about him. For preach as he might, and bless them as he might, and heal them as he might, still was his work undone. So, again, the cross, right? This is where he says, it is finished. The cross was the, the climax, in a sense, of his, of his work. It's interesting. John really highlights the cross nature. The resurrection and the cross are inseparable. But the cross where Jesus is lifted up, and it looks like he's lifted up as an object of shame, but it's actually as he's lifted up as an object of shame and it looks like all his work is being undone, that actually he's being raised up as an object of honor because he's finishing the task that the Lord gave him, that his father gave him. Lastly, this brings glory to Christ because it was the hour of triumph. Spurgeon writes this, His disciples thought that the cross would be a degradation. Christ looked through the outward and visible and beheld the spiritual. The cross, said he, the gibbet of my doom may seem to be cursed with ignominy, and the world shall stand round and hiss at the crucified. My name be forever dishonored as one who died upon the tree, and cavaliers and scoffers may forever throw this in the teeth of my friends that I died with the malefactor. But I look not not at the cross as you do. I know it's ignominy, but I despise the shame. I am prepared to endure it all. I look upon the cross as the gate of triumph, as the portal of victory. Oh, shall I tell you what I shall behold upon the cross? Just when mine eye is swimming with the last tear, and when my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish, 
Then mine eye shall see the head of the dragon broken. It shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Mine eye shall see my seed eternally saved. I shall behold the ransomed coming from their prison houses. In that last moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for its last cry of it is finished, I shall behold the year of my redeemed come. I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of all my beloved. Ay, and I shall see them, the world, mine own earth conquered, and usurpers all disthroned. And I shall behold and vision the glories of the latter days, when I shall sit upon the throne of my father David and judge the earth, attended with the pomp of angels and the shouts of my beloved. Spurgeon here is highlighting to us what the difference, right? The world looks at the cross, and even today, right, the, the cross, he dies between two thieves, two robbers, right? He dies on a very in, a noble way, and we would think of it as the ultimate moment of defeat for Jesus. But Jesus, when he looks at the cross, sees it as the ultimate moment of triumph and victory. The religious leaders see the cross, and they see their victory, but little do they know when they see the cross and think it's their victory, it's actually their defeat. Because And when they look at the cross and they think it's Jesus's defeat, it's actually Jesus's victory. You see how the cross, when we look at the cross and, and these things, it, it flips the way we look at life. It flips it all, doesn't it? Because at his, whenever it looked like Jesus was at his weakest on the cross, he was at his most powerful moment, saving us from our sins. Whenever he looks most dishonored for us who believe, that is the moment that we most honor him for. So, Jesus is glorified and we see his splendor in the cross. Second main theme, Christ crucified. Christ is the minister's great theme. This is what he's talking about is preaching. And we could also more broadly apply this to the message of the church and to us as believers as well. Spurgeon writes this, Christ Jesus is to be lifted up every day. For that purpose he came into the world, that like as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so he might by the preaching of the, of the truth be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ is the minister's great theme in opposition to a thousand other things which most men choose. I would prefer that the most prominent feature in my ministry should be the preaching of Christ Jesus. Christ should be most prominent, not hell and damnation. Now, Spurgeon will continue there and point out, of course, we warn people about their, their judgment to come. We warn them about the reality of hell and of God's wrath and, of, uh, and how this comes upon all who do not repent and believe in the gospel. At the same time, he continues elsewhere down and says this, My brethren, terrors never ought to be the prominent feature of a minister's preaching. Many old divines thought they would do a great deal of good by preaching this. I do not believe it. Some souls are awakened and terrified by such preaching. They, however, are but few. Sometimes, write solemnly, the sacred mysteries of eternal wrath must be preached. But far oftener, let us preach the wondrous love of God. There are more souls won by wooing than by threatening. It is not hell, but Christ we desire to preach. 
And that's, that's very helpful, isn't it? We don't want to be, we want to preach judgment and the law, and we have to do that. We have to do that. Even We even have to hear it as people who are in Christ. We have to be reminded um, in order to convict us again of our sin, don't we, of the law and, and of judgment and all those things. We have to rehear that over and over again. But the primary thing we need to look at is Jesus Christ. And the primary thing the church needs to preach is Christ. Christ and Christ alone. He points this he gives some further points underneath this and says, Christ should be the theme in opposition to mere doctrine. Spurgeon writes this, We desire to put Christ over the head of the doctrine. We make the doctrine the throne for Christ to sit on, but we dare not put Christ at the bottom and then press him down and overload him with the doctrines of his own word. And this is true. Sometimes we can be, so, while we're not opposed to doctrine, obviously, we believe it's very important. Um, We don't want to simply preach doctrine apart from the living person of Christ, right? If we're just preaching these things as like um, just a list of checklist of things to believe, that's wrong. We need to be preaching the person of Jesus, his love for us, how he came from heaven for us, how he talked to people, how he, how he, he is concerned for us and how he laid down his life for us. We don't simply need to be talking about this or that abstract doctrine. As important as doctrine is, we need to first and foremost put Christ on the throne, and the doctrine um, is, is the throne that he sits on. Secondly, Christ should be the theme that we preach in opposition to mere morality. Morality, in other words, in order just simply to tell people to, to be better or do better or, or to uh, change the way their behavior is. He writes this, the good man never thinks of mentioning regeneration, that is being born again, right? Regeneration, being made a new creation. He, right, he continues, he sometimes talks of moral renovation. He does not think of talking about perseverance by grace. No, continuance and well-doing is his, his perpetual cry. He does not think of preaching, believe and be saved. No, his continual exhortation is, good Christian people, say your prayers and behave well. And by these means you shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The sum and substance of his gospel is that we can do very well without Christ. That although certainly there is a little amiss in us, yet if we just mend our ways in some little degree, that old text, except a man be born again, need not trouble us. And isn't this true as well? On the one hand, we don't want to preach mere doctrine apart from the person of Christ. On the other hand, we don't want to preach mere morality apart from Christ. Um, And this is definitely one of maybe the tendency that we have today overall in the church is to preach mere morality. You may have heard the phrase that some people have when they look at the the religion of Americans and of the modern day, uh, maybe um, uh, modern day generations, it's been called moralistic therapeutic deism. The first, the deism part is that there are people that think there is just some God out there. Um, He's out there. He's not necessarily intimately involved in every detail of my life or, or whatever. Um, he's out there and I believe there's something out there. Um, but you know, it's not like the person of Christ. It's therapeutic in the sense in which it comes to help me feel better, do better. 
It helps me cope with my existence. And so oftentimes preaching like this will be is, well, there's this God out here and, and you want to feel fulfilled, don't you? Well, he look, he's, he's therapeutic. He can come and help you feel better. And whatever your, whatever you think your felt needs are, um, whether that be needing purpose or needing motivation or organization or to whatever that may be. Um, so it's therapeutic and Jesus and, and the God becomes almost like a butler or a personal trainer to help you in whatever you need. And then first of all, it's moralistic in the sense in which it's about you renovating your behavior, you being a better person moralistic therapeutic deism. And this has actually been done by, I believe, a, an academic uh, study of sorts. Um, they came up with this phrase and they found this is what a lot of younger people believe, moralistic therapeutic deism. And so, but Christ is not that message. Christ doesn't tell us to renovate our lives. He tells us that we need to forget about who we are in ourselves and we need to get into his life. We need to be born again. We need to believe and be saved. We need to put off the old man and put on him. We need to be made right with God through the blood of his cross. And that our felt needs may not be the right felt needs we actually need. Uh, our biggest need is to be taken, uh, is to, to have our sin taken away and to have the wrath of God removed and be found in Christ. Thirdly, he says here, Christian, Christ should be the theme, not only in opposition to mere doctrine or mere formality, but in opposition to preaching learning. Now, Spurgeon right away says this, God forbid that we should ever preach against learning. The more of it a man can get, the better for him, and the better for his hearers if he has grace enough to use it well. However, right, and this is, this is, and, and, uh, so that, that's a good thing that Spurgeon says there, right? We're not saying we're against learning, but what Spurgeon means is this that he says later on. He says, Christ wants us not to preach learning, but to preach the good word of life in the simplest manner possible. So we are here to preach Christ, and we preach it in plain, simple language. And this is something that I think if you're a real preacher or a teacher of the gospel or if you're a parent or if you are doing anything, anything you're trying to do to express the gospel message, you're trying to do it in a way that's understandable. You want to communicate it. The problem is, is that if we're simply preaching learning, we're actually preaching ourselves. We're not preaching Jesus. This also doesn't mean that we don't teach people Bible words and those technical words like justification or trinity or sanctification. All of those words that are Bible or theology or terms that we use to describe what we believe. I'm not saying we jettison those, but we want to be careful that those terms don't become a way for us to show how smart we are or how much learning we have. Instead, we want to use those things in service to help teach people and help them come to know Christ through the preached word. Okay, lastly, the main, last main section here underneath this is about the attractive power of the cross of Christ, the attractive power of the cross of Christ. And because Christ says that when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to myself. First of all, Spurgeon says this, Christ draws people. He draws as a trumpet. In other words, he attracts men to hear the proclamation Spurgeon writes this, Now the question is asked in these times, How are we to get the working classes to listen to the word? The answer is, Christ is his own attraction. Christ is the only trumpet that you want to listen, that Christ is the only trumpet that you want to trumpet Christ. Preach the gospel, 
and the congregation will come of themselves. The only infallible way of getting a good congregation is to do this. Now that's very good, isn't it? Because sometimes we're told, if you want to get a congregation or gather a church, you need to do this, that, or the other thing. But Spurgeon says here, how do we get people to listen to the word? And the answer is, preach Christ crucified. Preach the old gospel, Paul's gospel, Luther's gospel, the old Baptist gospel that our Baptist forefathers like Charles Spurgeon preached, and that we can preach today, and people will hear. Secondly, Christ draws like a net. He brings men out of the sea of sin. He says this, How shall souls be caught? They shall be caught by preaching Christ. Just preach a sermon that is full of Christ and throw it into your congregation. As you throw a net into the sea, you need not look where they are, nor try to fit your sermon to different cases, but throw it in. And as sure as God's word is what it is, it shall not return to him void. It shall accomplish that which he pleases and prosper in the thing whereto he hath sent it. Christ draws like a net. Thirdly, Christ draws with bonds of love. He says this, Christ is perpetually drawing thee to himself, to his likeness, to his character, to his love, to his bosom. And in that way, thou art kept from thy natural tendency to fly off and to be lost in the wide fields of sin. Bless God that Christ lifted up, draws all his people unto him in that fashion. So Christ's cross is attractive. It draws as a trump. It brings people to hear the gospel. It attracts like a net. It catches them and draws them in. It draws with bonds of love because we're so, right, that's, as the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Well, Christ draws us with his love again, right, as with a rope and cords. He keeps pulling us and keeps us to himself. He also says Christ draws like a standard, um, like like soldiers that gather around. And here he's especially talking about like how can we work with other Christians of different denominations and, uh, and, and such. Well, the answer is preach Christ, isn't it? Uh, Spurgeon points this out. The only standard of union that can ever be lifted up in England is the cross of Christ. As soon as we shall begin to preach Christ and him crucified, we shall be all one. And that's, that's true, isn't it? Again, if we're going to gather together with Christ, if we want to see the unity of believers in Jesus, we'll preach Christ. And when Christ is preached, the people of Christ will gather. Lastly, he says this, Christ draws like a chariot. And here he's saying, right, that Christ draws us and takes us up to heaven with him. Spurgeon writes this, Then Christ Jesus will draw all his people to heaven. He says he will draw them unto himself. He is in heaven. Then Christ is the chariot in which souls are drawn to heaven. The people of the Lord are on their way to heaven. They are carried in everlasting arms, and those arms are the arms of Christ. So Christ is honored and glorified in his cross. Christ is the theme that has continued to be heralded as he is on the cross to all sinners. And then lastly, Christ is the one who draws men to himself and keeps us there and will bring us to heaven at the last day. So, John's Gospel. Next week, we'll start chapter 13 um, as we now begin heading in John's Gospel to uh, seeing the cross and his resurrection, his uh, last uh, times here, his last days on earth, um, but doing his most important and vital work. So, I thank you so much for listening to this. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and keep reading the Bible.
Take care. God bless.